The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Doing well, Father. Thanks for being Good. here. Good. Tom, before we start, could I ask for some prayers? Yes, absolutely. I'd ask our viewers to pray for Father Eve Normandin. Father Normandin, uh, a Canadian, French-Canadian priest, one of the earliest traditional priests to uh, travel the circuit, take the traditional mass to people and uh, uh, out-of-the-way locales, you know, wherever there was a, a request for the traditional faith, for the Normandin was right there. Pastor of uh, pastor out in the cold, actually. Uh, Father Normandin just died at a very advanced age, uh, I think late 90s, if I'm not mistaken. And so we should pray for him and uh, also, my brother-in-law, uh, Terry Lawson, just passed away, and he was uh, a great help at the school, did a lot of things yeah. very selflessly, uh, devotedly there, and, and uh, I'd ask people to pray for him, too. Uh, of course, we have some other supporters of the program we'd like to have prayers for, too, and uh, uh, Mr. Robert Gorey, one of them, and uh, Mr. Hank Raska from years ago. And actually, I could name quite a few more, but I just ask people to keep the friends and supporters of what Catholics believe in their prayers. Absolutely. Thank you, Father. And Mr. Miller. Uh, anyway, as I say, yeah, it's a long many, list. Many but God knows who they are, and He will bless them and you if you pray for them. Yes, absolutely. Well, Father, I wanted to um, to get your comments on the uh, the events that took place today <coughs> with the uh, the inauguration of uh, of Joe Biden. Um, I, I understand you, you watched at least some of the inauguration, Father. What, what were your thoughts? <clears throat> well, I watched probably a total of possibly three minutes. Okay. Listened to possibly a total of one minute. Uh, that was as far as I could possibly yeah. <laughs> go. But I, I thought I should for the sake of um, commentary because I, I'm, I thought people would be asking. Mm. I did read the transcript of... Uh, Joseph Biden's inaugural address, and uh, and read it very carefully, and um, did look at the program for the uh, for the inauguration. Of course, we know that this was an inauguration like no other. Uh, you know, twenty five, perhaps as many as thirty thousand National Guardsmen there, all of them vetted by the FBI to make sure that they were, well, shall we say, n not going to be an issue, okay? Um, and uh, it seems so ironic that the man who was billed as the most popular president, elected United States uh, president, uh, the most popular man elected to the presidency of the United States of America needs upwards to 30,000 National Guardsmen to make sure that nothing goes wrong uh, during his inauguration. Right? And instead of having massive crowds there, 
which they probably wouldn't have expected anyway, because whenever he did appear, there were very few who came to uh, celebrate when he did campaign, <laughs> when he actually appeared. Uh, they put 200,000 American flags where people would have been, and they blamed COVID-19, saying this is perfectly safety, of course. And I guess they were expecting about 1,000 actual human beings present, um, most of them actually being associated with the government and some government positions. And uh, then they had a bunch of celebrities. Surprise, no surprise there. What I noticed, though, about the celebrities, I, I thought it was rather interesting. They had, by the way, a man named, I think, Leo Donahue, Donahue, Donahue who had, was a former president of uh, Georgetown University, Father Leo Donahue, giving the, um, an address. Um, and um, I, I don't know if he was leading a prayer or what, but anyway, <clears throat> here he is, supposedly a Catholic priest, uh, former president of a Catholic university, um, basically lauding a man and um, calling basically everyone to get behind a man who is completely pro-abortion, completely pro-perversion, uh, um, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, one could go on with quite a long list, you know. So this was a travesty, and people who uh, saw this were scandalized by, the <clears throat> by this. But we're talking about Francis, what Francis... Uh, represents as Catholicism here, and there are people who realizes that, realize that that is a total fraud, that that is not Catholicism at all. <clears throat> and this Father Leo Donahue represented Francis Catholicism, which is perfectly comfortable with a Joseph Biden and his, his policies, which are anti-Catholic policies, right? Um, there were a number of other interesting individuals who appeared, uh, Garth Brooks appeared to sing Amazing Grace, and he said it wasn't political, but he says he's all about unity, and that's what they were talking, unity. It's amazing they're, they're talking about all this unity while the partisans of the Democrats are calling for basically uh, cutting the heads off of, uh, of Trump supporters. Um, uh, Katie Couric saying we have to deprogram them, okay? Um, and uh, others talking about, uh, you know, getting them, get children away from them so they can't be influenced by them. Others talking about canceling them, persecuting them, prosecuting them. Uh, Nancy Pelosi's saying that we should investigate Trump uh, for a, as accessory to murder um, because of what happened on Capitol Hill. All of this is really unifying talk, you know. So you begin to detect just a scintilla of insincerity and a tiny dash of hypocrisy. Uh, but that's the, that's, that's the way they are. This is who they are. I mean, this is who they are, right? Um, regardless of what you, words they're using, the venom still shows, right? The fangs are still there, <laughs> you know? Um, but what I noticed about the performers is how many of the, especially the female performers, <clears throat> who contributed to this whole uh, event, right? <clears throat> um, are into the occult, are, are, are well-known occultists. And you have, you know, this Leo Donah Donahue, I'm sorry, 
Leo Donahue, Reverend Leo Donahue, former president of Georgetown University, on stage with them. You have Garth Brooks there singing Amazing Grace. But then you have uh, Jennifer Lopez, J-Lo. Uh, you know, she's been accused even by uh, those near and dear to her of being into the occult, seriously. You have Katy Perry, who is uh, cited, uh, and again, I, I, I don't know what the evidence is for that entirely. I've seen it. Um, I haven't investigated it that much. But nonetheless, I mean, she, she is, it is said, sold her soul for her fame, uh, rejecting the uh, Christianity of her parents, you know. Uh, Demi Lovato, I understand, has a reputation for being... Uh, very much enamored of the occult. Um, you have a woman named, well, her name is spelled Dua Lipa, D-U-A and L-I-P-A. I understand her name is actually spelled Dua Lipa. Her name is pronounced Dua Lipa, but she's a singing sensation and I guess dance sensation now out of uh, the mid Middle East. Uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, out of Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe, <clears throat> and uh, she has done videos in which she glorifies Hecate or Hecate, the uh, the pagan goddess, <clears throat> um, and um, she's definitely into the occult. You know, um, in fact, you see a lot of these women performers are very much into the whole uh, Lilith, Hecate, and um, just the the female paganism, religion, glorifying this wild woman mentality, this wild woman image, you know, who cannot be controlled. Even, even like Ecte, who is, has a, a, an image of being um, actually male-female, kind of androgynous, you know, mixing that, also that perversion into it, very pagan. <clears throat> so these people are all involved with this... Uh, uh, rejoicing and celebrating Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's accession to the thrones in America. Um, well, I mean, when during the campaigns and during Trump's presidency, we read fairly regularly about hundreds, even thousands of witches, right, in right. communication with each other to uh, invoke their evil powers to cast a spell on President Trump. Um, time and time again, we found this. I mean, basically, you could say it was a constant drumbeat throughout his, his presidency. It wasn't just the, uh, the Democrats on Capitol Hill who were trying to cast a, a spell on him. It wasn't just Nancy, Nancy Pelosi who was trying to hex him. Right? I mean, there were witches throughout the country who uh, were very loud in, in this trying to call occult powers to, to hex and to bind uh, Trump. They were, they were praying all during this time to their evil powers to make sure that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris came out on top any way they could. And they are congratulating themselves. They are now congratulating themselves. They are celebrating throughout the country that they succeeded finally. And, uh, you know, th this is very ominous because it's one thing when we talk about uh, leftist, socialist, 
communists, uh, uh, not only having influence, you know, over the, over those who are commanding our country, or even leftist, socialist, and communist sympathizers being those very authorities who are in the positions of power in our country. But when we realize the occult aspect of this, that we have occultists who are celebrating, and possibly occultists who are themselves in the government, and that, that is the dark power that is behind them, supporting them and promoting them, that's very, very concerning. <clears throat> so um, the upshot of all this is, um, uh, of course, we, we know that this was all defeated in the Roman Empire, but it, it was defeated by, you know, years of perseverance and uh, patience and patient endurance for the love of God, for the love of Christ, and finally uh, issued in a great victory for our Lord, for the kingship of Christ in the world. But it took centuries of, uh, of sacrifice. <clears throat> we have to start thinking in those terms. That, uh, you know, our Lord is calling upon us to be faithful in hard times. And so we have to uh, possibly even, well, I, more than possibly, I think we have, to do, we have to brace for some persecution. We have to brace for persecution. I'm just one of many, many people who are saying that now. Mm -hmm. uh, that we have to brace for persecution, but the, the most important way we brace for persecution is to increase our faith and our hope and our, our love for God. That can only be done by grace, and that can only be obtained by prayer and sacrifice. So that we have to get serious about the business of our salvation. It have to be about our, our Father's business. <laughs> and that is what it, that, that is. Our salvation. And um, so uh, no more just coasting along. Taking it easy, right? Thinking we're going to just sort of uh, waltz on into heaven without any effort. It doesn't work that way. Our Lord is calling us now to... Um, to be more faithful to him. Mm -hmm. He wants more of us now. Mm -hmm. And Father, one of the things you've mentioned in conjunction with, with this idea of um, kind of being more, more serious about our faith is the idea of fasting. You've mentioned that in, mm -hmm. in recent, recent programs and um, talking about how, how our Lord said that some, some devils were cast out only by, by prayer and fasting. So one of our, mm -hmm. our viewers actually wrote in and asked if you could um, elaborate a little bit on the, the necessity of, uh, of fasting and uh, the, the benefit that comes from, from fasting. So could you do that for us, Father? Well, fasting, essentially we're talking about uh, cutting down the quantity of food we eat, right? <clears throat> fasting inevitably involves that we feel hungry. Okay, if somebody can go through Lent and he may eat very little or she may eat very little compared to others, but if, if the person never feels hungry, there's no real fasting there. So fasting always involves feeling a bit hungry or less than satisfied, uh, less than full. So um, it's a sacrifice. It's a form of mortification. It was um, held up as a very powerful means of uh, uh, appealing to God's mercy uh, in the Old Testament and certainly in the New. Uh, remember when our Lord had was about to begin his public life after he had appeared on the banks of the Jordan River and 
Saint John the Baptist had told him that he was had told the people, his followers, "Behold the Lamb of God! Behold him who takes away the sins of the world!" Thereby telling them, you know, I I, I have a baptism of repentance, but I can't gain, obtain forgiveness for you. Now here's the Lamb of God. Here, he is the one who takes away the sins of the world. So John was actually directing his own followers to follow Christ. The whole purpose of John gathering them together uh, was to turn them to our Lord. You know that. And then our Lord went into the desert and he fasted himself. He fasted himself for a long time, right? And uh, it was after that fast we find him at the wedding feast of Cana beginning his public life. So that uh, it was very important that our Lord, um, uh, you know, actually devote himself to that fast as a means of his own preparation, of his own humanity for the, for the mission at hand here. And time and time again, our Lord talked about fasting too. Uh, when the apostles were criticized uh, because they were celebrating, our Lord said, well, they're they're celebrating now because they have the bridegroom with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and they will fast. Well, here we are, and this is what we must do. Uh, so, you know, they say that talk is cheap, and if all prayer is, is that. If all it is, is talk. And, um, you know, it's, it's raising our voices to God, but not our minds, and not our hearts, then it's not really prayer. But if we back it up with then sacrifice as well and mortification, if we come to God in, in a humble and contrite spirit, that is when our prayer really has power. Uh, the people of Nineveh uh, were called upon by God to uh, repent. They were ready to be destroyed. God, God was ready to destroy them, I should say. Um, and because, unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, they, Nineveh, the king included, um, humbled themselves. Uh, actually, the king came down from his throne, put on rags, uh, basically doused himself with ashes, and uh, sat in mourning. And all the people of Nineveh, too, by, by kingly decree. And they fasted, a very rigorous fast. God had mercy on them for that. After all the crimes that they had committed for so long, that brought God to the point saying, enough, you are, you are finished, I will finish you. But God sent Jonah, and you know, that was no easy task. <laughs> Jonah kept trying to avoid that. But uh, finally, God persevered, you know, thank goodness he did. And got Jonah to go and warn the people of Nineveh. You know, when you, when you think about how, how wicked the people of Nineveh were, you can kind of appreciate why Jonah would be reluctant to go and, and confront them with this message. Uh, he probably didn't think they'd take it very kindly. Um, but ultimately, uh, you know, Jonah himself, no doubt, was thoroughly amazed at the reception he got. And... Um, at his word from God, as a true prophet, they, uh, they responded and they obtained not only the grace of 
let's say, continued existence, but they actually apparently contain the, obtain the grace of conversion. Quite, quite wonderful. You know? That's what we need to do now. We need to be like those people of Nineveh. So, um, anyway, with regard to fasting, uh, it is uh, what actually uh, invests power in our prayer. The fact that it is added to prayer by our Lord, prayer and fasting. It, it, uh, it is really an invocation of the divine power okay. in a special way. Uh, well, Father, we had a few other uh, various emails that I, I wanted to uh, to get your response to, if we could. Um, one interesting one we, we've had for a while now. Um, wanted wanted to get a viewer wanted to get your your thoughts on the idea of cryptocurrency and if that could possibly possibly be an anti-Catholic concept, if that could in some way be tied to the uh, the the mark of the beast and how um, if we don't have this, we're not allowed to buy or sell or trade. And uh, he wanted to know, Father, do you, do you think that cryptocurrency could possibly be some kind of, maybe a, a predecessor to some kind of uh, financial system where the government is controlling every single transaction that's, that's coming or going, and somehow this could be related to the mark of the beast? Well, you know, Tom, I'm, I'm not uh, really conversant with all that, uh, that side of economics, certainly. <laughs> and, uh, but, I mean, my understanding is it could be used that way. Although there are those who insist no cryptocurrency is actually a way around that. I, I guess what I think of in terms of uh, total domination of the world's goods uh, is digital currency, everything being digitized, right? Now maybe cryptocurrency is all about that, I don't know. They talk about Bitcoin and they have a picture of an actual coin, but I don't know if there is such a thing. You know, people actually have actual physical bitcoins they, they trade, or is it, it's all digital, right? So I can see that the, the Antichrist, um, through his minions, would um, actually um, seize control of all of the goods in the world, such that no one would have access to them, except by some kind of a social um, scorecard or a social credit system, uh, whereby the community, quote-unquote, whatever that is, decides what somebody is really uh, deserving. Uh, you know, I, I've talked about the Great Reset before, and not only I, but many others, and how they say in 10 years, as their motto goes, you will not own anything and you'll be happy. You will own nothing, and you'll, but you will be happy. This is communism, yeah. right? pure and simple. And, uh, you know, it's hard to understand how a... Uh, digital currency would, would fit in there because <coughs> you're not supposed to be paying for anything because you don't own anything. You know, you don't have a bank account. You don't have any money of your own. Yeah. Everything is provided by the community at its own discretion. They will decide what you need. They will decide what you deserve. Uh, the clothes on your back and shoes on, shoes on your feet and everything else, you know, what, the food on your table. They will decide what you should eat, what you should wear, and what you should be allowed to do. Um, this is the hardest, coldest communism imaginable. This is what they have not only forecast, this is what they have planned. They're moving forward to that. Uh, by the way, you know, I mentioned like the, the people who are involved in, in the occult 
yeah. with regards to uh, the inauguration of Joe Biden, I think it's kind of interesting to note the connections to, well, who's, who sang the national anthem? Who performed the national anthem, as they like to say, was this Lady Gag, Lady Gaga person, right? She performed the national anthem. She's a, she's a devotee. She's actually a protege of uh, Marina Abramovich, the occultist, performance artist. And, um, you know, this woman performs the grossest, most weird and, and perverted forms of, of performance art. And this Lady Gaga is a, is a devotee of hers and actually a practitioner of her, of her methods, right? And, uh, and she's performing the, the national anthem for Joe Biden at his inauguration. Um, and this Maria Abramovich uh, teamed up with Bill Gates. The two of them teamed up on Google to promote some common cause they were making together. It's amazing how these people are all linked up together. Yeah. You know? So here we have Bill Gates, who's tied up with this whole thing. And, um, and that's the billionaire's uh, plutocracy. And they are going to evidently be overseeing this uh, new economic system. Um, so it's, it's a little difficult for me to, to see how, concerning their plans, how ultimately what they're accounting for is, a, is any kind of currency. I think what they want to do away, what to do, is completely eliminate currency because it involves people buying and selling. And what they want to do is impose the rawest form of communism they can get. But they're going to use they're going to use digital economics, digital currencies in order to arrive there. To take basically take everything away from everybody. Right? The story is that the plan is that they're going to drive everyone into so deep a debt, entire nations are going to go so deeply into debt, that finally they will be drowning in debt such that the powers that be, the world's wealthiest few billionaires, trillionaires perhaps by that time, will just have to organize a common agreement that they're going to eliminate all debt as long as people are willing to simply surrender their rights of ownership over anything at all. They have to completely give up any rights of private ownership in order to be forgiven the debt that they can possibly escape from any other way. And that's the way they're going to arrive at this. But they're, they're probably going to wind up using this digital currency as a means to get to that, to get to that end. And then you can't buy or sell and um, you will have only what the community deems fit to give you. And so those who do not meet the uh, community values of the one-worlders, globalists, Satanists, and so on, they simply will starve. Uh, China, even now, is building massive concentration camps, they know. Uh, and the, the, the idea is that this is for COVID people who are going to be sent there. But you can be sure it's not only going to be COVID people who are going to be sent there. They're simply going to be uh, sent there 
to be contained and uh, to live out their lives and die there in obscurity and hopelessly. And uh, considering the influence that China uh, has in our country now, especially with this new administration, uh, I wouldn't be a bit surprised to find that that's where we're going here. We're on our way that way now. So, I mean, all of this barring divine intervention, okay? And that's where our prayer and fasting come in, right? So, um, our, our absolute hope and confidence is in God. And to the extent that we... Um, you know, divert that hope and confidence to any mere mortal human being. We're making a serious mistake. <laughs> so let's uh, maybe, and this is God's purpose, I'm sure, to to make us turn toward Him and place our hopes in Him, where they their hopes belonged all this time, anyway. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, as far as the currency question goes, again, I don't know, but I think they're going to be organizing the use of currency so as to try to achieve their one-world communism. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Father, earlier in the show, you you spoke about uh, the Francis Catholicism, and we had a viewer write in uh, quite some time ago, and and uh, he he gave us a quote from Francis where he apparently said that God's love is a free initiative, a divine friendship that asks for nothing in return. Uh, our viewer says that this is a diabolical attack on the sacred heart and the salvation of souls. Yet it has drawn little, if any, attention from uh, any conservative, Novus Ordo, laity, and religious. So could you, Father, comment on this quote of Francis's, that God's love is a free initiative, a divine friendship that asks for nothing in return. What kind of friendship asks for nothing in return? What kind of one-way, you know, unilateral friendship is that? That's absurd. It's insulting to God. You know, who is all just and all merciful and all loving, but he created us precisely to be in his own image and likeness with the power of knowing and loving and ultimately loving good and loving him as the supreme good. This is a denial of the, of the entire human vocation. It's a denial of the entire human race as being created in the image of God and by grace in the likeness of God. It is a negation of what it is to be a human being, really. This is outrageous, what this man is saying. And it is blasphemy, what he's saying. I mean, when our Lord, I mean, uh, we we could look through the sacred scriptures and we see, we see the great commandment, the first great commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Francis says, God loves us and doesn't expect anything in return. I mean, this man is not a Christian. But he's hardly even human, <laughs> you know. I mean, any, any human being who believes in a deity realizes that this deity wants something from us. I mean, he made us for a reason, right? <clears throat> and uh, this idea is a satanic idea. That yes, God makes us, God loves us, but he doesn't expect anything from us. We're free to do as we please. We have no obligation to him, as far as he's concerned. As far as God is concerned, we have no obligation for him, to him. Uh, this is truly a satanic idea. Mm-hmm. And if that's how Francis thinks, and evidently it is, then that explains a lot about him. You know, you, you have the first great commandment that our Lord gives, okay? And um, our Lord, God gave that to Moses. We read that in the book of Deuteronomy. 
We read it in the lips of our Lord himself, right? Uh, who answers that. That uh, That is what we are meant to do. That is the first great commandment. Our Lord tells us that. We hear our Lord speak to us of his sacred heart in the 1680s when he appears to St. Margaret Mary. Then he holds his own human heart before her, uh, which is the heart of man, but also the heart of God. And he says, Behold the heart which has so loved men and is met with so much or rewarded with so much forgetfulness, negligence, and contempt. <clears throat> and this is a lament from our Lord. This means, well, to those who love our Lord, this means everything. In other words, our Lord is saying, <clears throat> I love you and I want your love. I want your love for me. Your love is that important to me. <clears throat> now, one might argue, why, why would our love be important to God? <clears throat> well, in the beatific vision in heaven, we'll have the answer to that question. Why God values my love for him. Why he values your love for him. Why he values anyone, any creature's love for him. But the fact is, he does. And to say that he doesn't, doesn't care, means nothing to him. He wants nothing from you. Not your knowledge, not your confidence, not your trust, not your faith, not your love. It is an absolute negation of the very person of God made man, the Son of God made man. It's a negation of him. And also, Father, by him saying this, doesn't, doesn't that render the entire Novus Ordo clergy uh, just, just totally meaningless and, and pointless? If, you know, if God expects nothing, then why are all of these, these clergy men, perhaps women, um, performing all, all of these, these services and whatnot? And if that's, if that's true, why, why, would, uh, why would not any of these Novus Ordo clergy say something? Uh, well, like evidently, if they're performing them, they're performing them to please men, not God. I can't think of any other reason why, Tom. That's a good question, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if the purpose is not pleasing God, because God doesn't care, then I guess they're just pleasing. Well, look at the whole Novus Ordo. That's what the whole Novus Ordo was about, really. I mean, the changes that were made were made to please men, right? Yes. They were not made to please God. Everything was cut, shorted, slashed, and so on, in order to accommodate, as Bonini said, as Anabali Bonini said, Western secular man. <laughs> this was the model that Paul VI used in designing his new liturgy. And I guess Francis is telling us the same thing in different words now. That liturgy is really about Western secular man and what appeals to him, or what they thought would appeal to him, and have nothing to do with pleasing God. Mm -hmm. Wow. But to say that, um, what a, what a bald-faced insult to God, saying that you know, God doesn't care yeah. uh, that he wants nothing from you. Yeah. Um, how can anybody how can anybody hear that, hear him say that, read, read those words of his and fail to realize that uh, this man is anti-Christian, if not the anti-Christ. Right? Right. That's right. outrageous. Yes, absolutely. Of course, he said many outrageous things, but... Yeah. Um, well, Father, perhaps this, this could be the last email, but I wanted to get to this one, because we've, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but uh, this viewer said, uh, As you know, Father, the Novus Ordo regime canonized John Henry Newman not long ago. 
I very much liked his writings before, but his canonization by the infernal Nova Sordo regime has raised my skeptical antenna <coughs> against him. So should we should we approach the writings of John Henry Newman with caution? Yes, I would say so. I mean, there are things that uh, John Henry Newman wrote that were very inspiring. I mean, he was a very uh, literate individual, and his his writing is very powerful. I think, but. Um, Traditional Catholics have been wary of some elements of his writing, noted, notably the, what, what is referred to as the illative sense, I-L-L-A-T-I-V-E, the illative sense that he writes about, because they see in that something very much akin to modernism the idea of the religious sentiment in every man. And I must say, I mean, there seems to be a parallel, at least, if not a convergence, between the modernist concept of the religious sense, a religious sentiment in man. We read about that in the encyclical Pascendi Dominici Gregis of Pope Pius, St. Pius X of September 8, 1907. Uh, St. Pius X speaks uh, somewhat at length of that religious sense or sentiment that is the basis of modernist thought, really. Um, and those then later who would see the, in uh, the writings of John Henry Newman this illative sense, they really see that there are some commonalities there which, which could be bad, could be very dangerous, theologically speaking. So even though one might read certain things uh, of John Henry Newman that might uh, be inspiring and, and actually rather you know, impressive in their literary power, um, it's not without problems. His writings, his thought is not without problems. He evidently seems to have been tainted with, with modernism, at least tainted with it. Um, now, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to defame the, the poor man, but uh, now there are accusations being made about his moral qualities. You might be aware of that. There, um, actually, I think they've done some writing about that in the, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Tradition in Action, right? So. Tradition in Action has written up this very question of, uh, about the accusations against the morality, even of John Henry Newman, and the accusations are rather shocking. And uh, these days, I'm afraid, people might tend to just assume that they might be true, but that they shouldn't assume that. But considering, considering you know, the, the illative sense and its uh, philosophical and theological problems, and uh, these, you know, current accusations that are being made now, <coughs> I would advise anyone to exercise caution in delving too deeply into the writings of John Henry Newman. And of course, as the writer says, if the, if the Novus Ordo canonize him, that's a bit of a red flag already, you know. I mean, the Novus Ordo has in fact canonized people who I personally believe were saints and are in heaven. I believe Padre Pio is a saint in heaven now, but I don't believe he's a saint in heaven because the Novus Ordo canonized him. When I say 
that, I mean, I believe he's a saint in heaven in spite of the fact that the Nova Soto canonized him, just because I believe he's a saint in his own right. I can't canonize him myself. I, I, don't, I wouldn't even try, right? But uh, um, they're trying to seize upon him, his reputation for holiness, and trying to, I think, use him and abuse him to serve their own purposes. But um, Padre Pio was not a modernist. He wanted nothing to do with the Novus Ordo. He never said the Novus Ordo liturgy. The most they could do was to convince him to say uh, the, the traditional Mass on an actual altar facing the people. And they have pictures of that everywhere to make it look as though he was saying the Novus Ordo. He wasn't. But even there, with the altar turned around, he, he looked like he was suffering mightily. And not necessarily from the wounds and the, uh, the stigmata. He was suffering because of what they were putting him through. Mm -hmm. uh, he wanted nothing to do with the Novus Ordo. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't either. Right? We should hold to the traditional faith entirely. That's right. Well, Father, could we perhaps end with uh, some words of encouragement? There's been a lot of, a lot of negativity lately, it seems. <laughs> There's not... Seemingly not a whole lot of, of good happening right now. In the well, world. So any, well there's been a lot of, a, a lot of, there are a lot of negative things going on. Okay, we know that. We understand that. I don't think we're being ne uh, negative about it. I think we're just being realistic about okay. it myself. I mean, the church is always thoroughly negative. You read the Gospels, and uh, there, are so, there are people who claim that our Lord was very negative about <laughs> things, right? And to be negative about human nature, uh, that's probably pretty... Uh, prudent and wise to do. I mean, I, you know, you, when our Lord rebukes the apostles and says, oh, you have little faith, why are you fearful of your little faith? You know, maybe Peter would turn to him and say, why are you so negative? <laughs> but, uh, you know, people make those accusations because they want everything to be just peachy all the time. And, um, but, uh, you know, Tom, ultimately, our, 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 we know who is the victor here? Our Lord says, I have overcome the world, right? Have courage, have faith, be confident. I have overcome the world. Our Lord has overcome all of that. And it's actually um, pathetically, uh, almost pathetically amusing in a strange sort of way to see the leftists uh, congratulating themselves so confidently that they have they have succeeded finally, that they have achieved their goal, that they are triumphant, right? And you know very well that their very, that very arrogance is going to completely blow up in their faces. It's going to sink them. It does it every time. Um, <clears throat> Satan cannot learn that lesson. He can learn a lot of things, but he can't learn that uh, to get um, beyond his pride. And his tendency to congratulate himself, even as his doom is, uh, you know, looming up behind him to crush him again. <clears throat> and so this is how, you know, how it is with God. I mean, our Lord Jesus Christ um, has assured us that the victory is his. And if we will be faithful to him, the victory is ours too. There's no doubt about it. When we read in St. Matthew chapter 24 about the events even surrounding the end of the world, I'd say probably the most negative of times. And anybody who wants to accuse us of being negative for talking about them, well, they should go to the you know, last Sunday after Pentecost or the first Sunday of Advent and read the Gospels, okay? And they can use the church of being negative if they want to. 
But the fact is, um, these things all conclude with this enormous triumph, this resounding triumph of our Lord. Uh, go to Psalm 21. Uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know? And read it all the way through. And yes, in, in the beginning one might say, well, gee, it awfully sounds kind of negative. Well, this is the psalm that talks about you know, the prophecy of our Lord's crucifixion, death on the cross. But you keep reading and it ends with this resounding triumph of God you know, in the church. So um, this is the psalm that our Lord invo himself invoked upon the cross. So that's why we have to be too. We always have to uh, look beyond all of this sound and fury uh, of human drama, and we have to see God's love, you know, the beginning and the end and always. And those who are faithful to that, they already have the victory. They're holding the victory in their hands. The victory is already in their souls, in sanctifying grace, right? That's it, everlasting life already begun in the soul. As Father Gary Lagrange calls it, the, the seed of everlasting life has been planted there already. So uh, we have every reason to be ultimately very positive. The only, I'll tell you, the only reason why anybody would be negative, really, is because they're attached to the world. They're attached to the things of the world. And they're fearful of losing them. They think, oh my goodness, you know, we have so much and we're going to lose it. Well, maybe you will. But maybe you'll lose it and that'll help you save your soul because maybe you're just too attached to it. If it makes you so overwhelmed with sadness at the, at the thought of, you know, being deprived, fasting, uh, maybe this is a very danger, great danger to your soul. Maybe God is going to free you of that so you will not go to hell. You know, somebody with faith would look at it that way and say, well, if I'm that sad and that fearful about what's coming in the world, maybe I'm just too attached to the world. And uh, maybe I'm answering my own question as to why, why would God allow that? It's trying to save me, in spite of myself, perhaps. So I would just encourage people that if they look upon the events of the day and they feel fearful and negative in the sense of spiritually negative about it, it's probably because they're just too attached to the things of the world. And uh, if you want models to know how we should think, go to the lives of the saints, right? Read the saints. Read what they say. Read how they think. That's how we should think now. And uh, as St. Teresa of the Child Jesus said, God save us from sad saints, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, the more spiritually we look at this, the the more lighthearted we can be and the more joyful we can be as the saints themselves were. And uh, the more worldly fashion we look at it, the more fearful and timid and even frightened we are. Today is the feast of St. Sebastian, St. Fabian, uh, St. Uh, yeah, Fabianos, um, a, a pope who actually was put to death for his fidelity to Christ and Sebastian, the soldier, the, the favorite of the Emperor Diocletian, the head of the Praetorian Guard, everything to lose in the world, right, for being faithful to Christ. And yet we find this man not only fearless, but joyful, you know, at the thought that now our Lord has deemed me worthy to actually call upon me. He's calling on me now to do something for him. 
What a, you know, it's, it's an honor for a man to be called by the emperor to be the head of the Praetorian Guard, okay? But he looked upon it as a greater honor to be called for, for, by Christ to put all that aside and do something for him. I mean, the emperor of heaven, more than the emperor, God himself. So um, St. Sebastian was tied to a post, riddled with arrows, right? They, uh, came to take his body away to bury it, found he was still alive, nursed him back to health. Months later, he appears before Diocletian, who at first is shocked to see him <laughs> still alive, and uh, then orders him to be beaten to death with rods. Why would St. Sebastian go back to confront the emperor? You know? He wasn't afraid. He wasn't counting what he had to lose, you know. He was considered dead, I guess. He could have just simply blended into the empire at that point, made a new life for himself. He couldn't do it. His love for God was too great. And um, he might have even feel, felt somewhat cheated about being a martyr, you know, as though, was I not worthy to give my life for our Lord, you know. So, um, another, another great hero like that is St. Financius. I mean, he's a 14, 15-year-old boy. <clears throat> and the emperor kept punishing him unto death, and Venantius kept cover, recovering and coming back and confronting the emperor, saying, well, here I am, you didn't kill me yet. <clears throat> but this young lad had such a courage because he wasn't attached to the things of the world. He didn't love them, he didn't worship them. They weren't the purpose of his existence, he knew that. And what a model that would be for us now to detach ourselves from this, this sick... And it is a sickness, um, uh, attachment to the things of the world that holds us back from really being faithful to our Lord. I'll tell you, if, if ever we and the rest of our human race needed that right now, it's uh, read it that, it's right now that we need wholehearted, um, you know, those who are faithful to our Lord in every way and cannot be intimidated by the world or terrified by the things, the powers of the world, or bought off by the things of the world. So that's what we have to strive for. First great commandment, right? That's, that's the agenda. If somebody say, what, what do we live for? What's the agenda? The answer is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, with thy whole mind, with thy whole strength, thy whole will. That's it. Those who do that are in heaven. And those who are striving to do that will be in heaven. I have overcome the world. So that's what we need to do with our Lord. Absolutely. Because of Him. Well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate all your time. Appreciate everything you do. Thank oh, you very well, much. That's mutual, John. Thank you very much. Yep. Appreciate it. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray in due penance. Thank you and God bless you. <laughs>